I want to set the scene for us. It is, it's an odd little story, this story, and it's in an odd little place. And the scene around it is, is really quite epic. A lot of massive, big, epic things. And our friend, Dr. Luke, is a really great writer. He's an incredible writer, and he's, he's dropping little plot lines in all the way through here, and he's building the story up, and he's thickening up the plot. So as is my way, I will lose myself in a little story, and I don't want to do that, that we all miss the benefit of the big story. Luke is, in an incredibly clever way, drawing a big picture for us here. And the first story, at start of chapter 4, if you've, got, if you've got Bibles with you or something like that, you could pick up on this. If not, you know, use your imagination. Um, it's, it's just an epic story of darkness and light. Jesus is in the desert. He's been hounded by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights, um, bearing all the hallmarks of a vulnerable human being. Um, it's, it's just this epic big story. He's hungry and weak, and Luke draws up this big picture of darkness and light. You can picture it in your head, can't you? You can imagine it in your head. I was watching Star Wars with my kids the other day, and you don't need anyone when you're watching Star Wars to tell you who the bad guys are, do you? The bad guys are accompanied by that subtle, dark music. They're often wearing masks. They're somehow a bit less attractive, and there's something very eerie about them. You don't need anybody at the side of you to nudge you and say, is he a bad guy, Dad? You can see the bad guys a mile off. And in this story, we can see really clearly who the bad guys are and who the good guys are. But there is another question that Luke drops in above that. It's not really a question of who the bad guys is and who the good guys is, because the detail we get about Jesus, I think, is really interesting. He's, he's starving. He's vulnerable. He's tempted. He's tempted. The question here is not about who the good guys and the bad guys are. It's this epic telling of who, who has the authority. And the devil in that story claims the authority. We've got this huge, big epic tale. And then at the other story, there's that story. There's the epicness of that. So Jesus is baptized and is acknowledged as God. Then there is this story about the temptation. And then we come on to the stories at the end of chapter 4, which are equally epic and massive. Jesus has victory over demons. And he speaks with authority. Luke drops this question of who has the authority at the start of the chapter. And at the end of the chapter, Jesus is walking around Capernaum with authority and speaking with authority to demons, and speaking with authority to sickness. And we've got this massive, epic, big picture played out. And then in the middle, we've got what, it's not a contrasting story, but it's an odd little story. It's Jesus meets the everyday. Really odd, little fascinating, little piece in the middle. And so in the middle of this hugely epic sort of setting, Jesus walks up into the streets of Nazareth, down the streets that he knows so well, past the familiar faces that he knows so well, and the people take a good look at him, and maybe you're familiar with this story, and they look at him up and down and they go, nah, nah, he's not the real deal. I want us just to pause over this scene for a second, just to stop and consider this scene, all this truth that Jesus has in his head, all this incredible epic if that's even a word, this epic setting that's happened all around Jesus, and he walks into the everyday, and the everyday people just reject him. It's an odd meeting. It's an odd reality for Jesus to face, isn't it? He's just been proclaimed audibly by his Father God as God. 
He's just gone through this huge, big trial of temptation and come through the other side. He's performing with authority, and he walks into his hometown, and the people look at him and go, nah. It's helpful for us just to pause over that, because in some sense, we face this odd reality. We, too, have that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Paul says this in Romans, living within us. We have this knowledge of the battle of good and evil within us. It's our everyday experience, isn't it? And yet sometimes when we meet the everyday, we can just be completely swarmed and swamped and overwhelmed. I had an experience when I was, when I was driving my truck. I used to be a truck driver. That was part of my job. And, and I would, I'd have a, I'd have a sermon on, on the radio and then I'd, I'd have this prayer time in my truck, you know, not very truck driver-ish, was it? But I'd do that, and then I'd get to meet this customer, and he'd remember that I'd been to church, and he'd say something like, oh, you, how was church for you the other day? And I've got all this truth, all this epicness in my head about the, the greater battle of good and evil that's going on, and this, this transformational thing that's happening in my life. I've been praying all the way, and my response is, yeah, it's all right. Do you ever have that when you're... When you rock up to work on a Monday morning and, and you've, you've, you've maybe had a similar experience, you've, you've, been, you've not prayed for months and then you've had this experience where you've been nothing but praying for months and you're going through this terrible time with temptation and you, then you've come to really know Jesus as your saviour personally and then you rock up to work and somebody that knows you've got a little bit of a, bit of a faith says, how's, your, how's church going, how's, how's that going? And you go, yeah, yeah, it's all right. It just kind of manifests itself in, in some kind of odd response and somehow the ordinariness of, of canteen, newspaper reading, uh, real radio listening, regular chat can kind of be oppressive, can't it? Just the ordinariness just kind of suffocates this amazing thing that we know. And I want us to look through this passage and see how Jesus, when he goes back into the ordinariness, is able to be a witness. So how can we exist as God-shaped, eternal beings, transformed by the reality of Christ in our lives, filled with the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, how can we exist in this, with this brick wall of oppression that sometimes surrounds us? It's a question I want to leave with you. How do we share something of that reality in those moments when we're at work? How do we break down some of those barriers? How do we break down that normalness with this truth that we know? Excuse me. Verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee, and in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, and as was his custom, he stood up to read. I don't know if you've experienced something of going back to your hometown and been, have you done that? Maybe if you've been away at university and you come back, and let's just say you've got a, a degree in rocket science or something like that, and you come back, and yet you're still perceived as, oh, that's Jeff's lad, or that's so-and-so's lad. Does that happen to you? It doesn't kind of matter what you've done. Or, or, it happens to me if I'm out with my dad somewhere, and, and the people that remember me from being a little lad, and it doesn't matter now what I'm doing or anything like that. They see me through a definite perspective of, of, of my dad's eyes. And they, and they sort of generate their levels of expectation through as well what my dad has achieved. It's just, it's just often how you're perceived. And that is the reality for G- Jesus, the Son of God, as he goes back to Nazareth. What do they say about him when he goes back to Nazareth? It's up there in the text. It's like, and they've heard about the amazing things he's been doing. They say, that's um, 
It's Joseph. It's Joseph's lad. You remember there was some drama about when he was born. You know, he's, he's, he makes a cracking chair. He makes you a cracking chair. He's a good, he's a good carpenter. And, and, that's, and they put Jesus in this box, the Son of God. That's the kind of reality with which Jesus faces going back to his hometown. It sits really oddly in this epic scene of good and evil, doesn't it, that Jesus goes back to his hometown and the people kind of go, yeah, we're not buying it, and yeah, oh, it's Joseph's lad. Incredible. And then he sits down and begins to preach. That's what they did, the rabbis. They sat down to preach. And I don't really know, and it's, uh, it's verse 18, I don't know how this bit, maybe I should have researched it more. I researched it quite a bit. I don't really know how it happened that he came to this text. I don't know whether they gave him this text and he just had to read it or whether Jesus picked this text. But it's a significant text. Let's listen to the words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And, and all the eyes in the room are fixed on Jesus. That's what the text said. It's like, a, it's like an epic movie scene again where everybody just zooms in on Jesus to see what he's going to say about this prophecy. Are you the ma- Messiah? And what, what's important for us to recognize here is they're waiting for a Messiah to fulfill this in a really literal sense. They're waiting for a Messiah to come and, and, and preach good news to the poor, liberate the poor, liberate the captives, and bring sight to the blind. They're hoping for all this to happen in a literal sense with a kind of Israel focus on we think this Messiah is going to liberate us and we are the captives. And, and this Messiah that's going to come is going to kick out the Romans and give us back our country. And what Jesus does is fulfill this prophecy in a way that's just about going to blow their heads. It's going to blow their minds because Jesus comes not just to literally return sight to the blind, and give, proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus comes to proclaim good news to the spiritually poor, to the spiritually blind, to the spiritually oppressed. And that's not just Israel. That's the whole world. That's the big news. This is Jesus' first sermon, really, that we read about. And it's big news. And it's a change of plans. And Jesus begins to preach with wisdom, eloquence, and and grace, and I want you to hang on to this word, grace. I think that I've read this passage wrong all my life. I think I've mixed up a few biblical passages together, and you're looking at me like, really? And I'm serious. I think I have, I have just, I've just assumed I know what this text is talking about. As Jesus comes to this text, I, I think they kind of, they're impressed with what he's saying. And I, and I always read it that they were impressed that he went away he got an education and he came back and he blew them away with his knowledge and his wisdom. But that's not what impresses them. Have a look. Study the text. Have a look. It's verse 22, I think. What impresses them about his preaching? What grabs them? This cynical audience. What holds their attention? It's the gracious words that fell from his lips. I got it into my head. And I'm sure Jesus was eloquent. I think he's the greatest preacher that's ever lived. And I'm sure his words were full of wisdom. And he just blew people away when he preached. And yet what captivated this tough home crowd audience was the gracious words that fell from his lips. These people were in no hurry to be taught by Jesus. They were in no hurry to be taught by somebody from their hometown 
of Nazareth. There is no rush for that to happen. And yet Jesus, I mean, in, in, in a couple of minutes, they're going to drag him off and try and throw him off the end of a cliff. This is a tough crowd. And yet Jesus has them. He grabs them with the gracious words that fall off his lips. I just, I want you to bear that in mind because if we are living out kingdom values, if we are representing Jesus in our lives, we will run into tough crowds. Our life will be an experience of tough crowds. You will go to the canteen at work and it will be a tough crowd. You will take the kids on the school run and it will be a tough crowd. And what is our secret weapon in that? What is a lesson that we can learn here at the feet of Jesus? It's grace. I was watching a documentary on Obama's White House a few weeks ago on BBC Two. I don't know if anybody got a chance to see it. It was an, an incredible... Um, was it incredible? I was really into it. I'm saying it's incredible. I'm looking around thinking perhaps people think this is quite boring. I don't know. I, I, thought, it was, I thought it was amazing. And actually, I went from being indifferent to Obama... And again, I don't know if I should be a politically opinionated, but I ended up quite liking the fella after I'd watched this. And it's that clip, maybe you've seen it on YouTube, where he starts singing Amazing Grace. Have you seen that clip on YouTube where he starts singing Amazing Grace? And it looks spontaneous. It was probably quite choreographed, perhaps. I don't know, but it looks spontaneous. And he was singing it at a ceremony to mark, um, to, to commemorate, that's probably the right word, to commemorate the death of four or five African-American pastors who were stabbed by a white guy that went into a church. And if, if do you remember this, I think it's probably last year sometime, and America, very quickly, civil war is too strong of a word, but it, it, it erupted quickly, and opinions that had been under the surface came to the, came to the fore very quickly, and, and it, was, it was a drama. And you can see Obama in this interview almost with a sense of relief when he starts to sing Amazing Grace. What happened a few days after this stabbing, was that the wife and I think the mother of some of the ministers that were stabbed said publicly, and this is amazing, amazing grace anyway, we forgive this guy. America is in turmoil, ready to kick off, and in some respects it probably still is, but in this moment it was really hard-lined. Opinions were very quickly formed, and I think Obama's thinking to himself, I'm not sure how I can police this. I'm not sure how I can, even if I can explain to these people the rights and wrongs of all this, I'm not sure of anything that's going to get through. And yet this lady, through an act of grace, breaks this disgruntled community's back. And grace in this situation is just irresistible. In, in, a, in a really hostile situation, grace finds a way to get through. Um, Paul sums up this school of thought really well. He leaves us with a, a mathematical equation in Romans, believe it or not. It was, it was my mechanism for remembering, I had to learn it at Bible college, what, what Romans was about each chapter, and I couldn't do it. It was too hard, and I had to come up with these little formulas, and I'm going to read out the verse here and see if you can spot the formula. Romans 5, 20 to 21. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you get the picture there? Paul spends the first couple of chapters of Romans telling us how bad the world's got, how much sin that there is. And he goes into great depth to make it very clear that we know that sin is massive. It's a problem 
for the world. And yet by the time we get to the chapter 5, he affirms for us that no matter how much sin that there is, there will always be more grace. It's this incredible resource that we have as Christians to a world that would oppress us and ignore us and be apathetic to the Christian message. We have a secret weapon and we have loads of it and it's called grace and we receive it from Christ. There's another verse that I came across in Colossians and I just really wanted to read this out because in, I, I pictured the, the awkward canteen moment where you're sat opposite your colleague and you might have been sat opposite your colleague for 10 years and, and sharing your faith and the difficulty that that can be and I found this little passage in Colossians, and I thought, this is a really good checklist, actually. If you're, if you're trying to reach out for God, run through this. Colossians 4, 2 to 6. Might be worth making a note. Might be worth reading it later on tonight. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Just, just dwell on some of those concepts. Making the most of every opportunity. How many opportunities do we make the most of? Or do we just panic? Let your conversation be always full of grace. If you've got that right, you can walk out. If you've got that licked, then that's fine. This is a huge challenge. Let your conversation be always full of grace. Proclaim things clearly. Be wise in how you act. Some helpful advice from Paul as we think about how we can impact the, the normal and the everyday Jesus goes on, chapter 4, 22, 23. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't that Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself and you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Jesus senses their hearts. He's realized that they've not come in this moment to follow him to obey his teachings. They've not come to recognize him as God. Why have they come? What have they come to see? They've said, show us what you did in Capernaum. To put it very crudely, they've said, show us a magic trick. We've heard about the miracles. That's what interests us. We're not here to follow you just yet. We're here to see the tricks. And then Jesus tells them two stories that, that, would, that would fly past our heads and that we would miss, but they would be stinging to this Hebrew audience. He says to them, Elijah was sent to help a widow, but he wasn't sent to help a Hebrew widow. He was sent to help somebody outside of the Hebrew community. He said, Elisha went to heal a leper, but not a Hebrew leper. A leper, actually, it was terrible. He was sent to heal a leper, Naaman, the head of the enemy army. And Jesus is saying to him very pointedly here, you, you didn't receive these prophets. And when you didn't receive these prophets, these prophets went out to the world to be a use for God. And Jesus is saying, this is a picture for you that's helpful. You're not receiving me now. You're not receiving me now. And the message 
will go out to the world. And Jesus told it in a very pointed fashion. Can you imagine telling a story about how God helps your arch rival, Naaman, the Syrian leader? It's like in the Iraq war, a preacher mentioning that God's healing hand reaches out to Saddam Hussein. This is, this is pointed. And it slips past our heads like it's not even a story at all. And Jesus is making a real point. He's saying, you're not receiving me. And now this kingdom that I'm bringing in, that I'm preaching, that's coming, will go to everyone. And you're missing the boat. And the people go nuts. They, quite, they were quite impressed with him when he was speaking graciously about God. But when he started to mention things like this, then they dragged him. And they, did, they tried to do a professional stoning. And a professional stoning, I think you save time grabbing the stones and you just throw somebody off the edge of a cliff. And they drag him to the edge of the cliff. And it says that Jesus slips away. I guess we can see something of his authority in being able to slip away. But the people make two errors with Jesus. They make two grave errors. They see Jesus as just somebody who can provide them with a, with a magic trick, with a miracle. And they see God as somebody who's there to, for their military success. They, they see Jesus and they think, here he is, he can do the miracles. And they see, they see God in it and they say, God's just there. They see God particularly through specifically, I guess, Israelic, Israelic eyes. And they see God is here to set us free and to liberate us. And that is like the perspective that they have. In some respects, they grab Jesus and they grab God and they keep him in a box. And that has been a habit, hasn't it, with us historically, with God. Think of the children of Israel in the Old Testament when they went out to battle. There was many times when they would grab the tabernacle because they wanted to win the battle and they'd literally grab God in the box and take him as like a lucky charm. And the Romans picked up on this idea when they embraced Christianity. They would walk out with, with the cross in front of them. They would keep God in the box. They would say, well, yeah, we've got God, but we've got him for military success. Donald Trump's probably playing the God in a box card at the moment. He's turned up at church a few times. He's probably hanging on to this idea that, that God can be useful for military success. And as, at the same time as we, as we condemn these nations and these people historically, we have to admit that sometimes we do this ourselves. We keep God in a box. God's there for the times when we're really desperate. God's there for, for Sundays. God's there for the time when we want to start over again. And we, we pull him out in the box and we say, that's great, I understand God. God works on this level. But I want to still be bitter about this and I want to still have this problem to go on in my life and I really enjoy this and I'm not going to give this up but I've got God here in this box and Jesus is saying to the hometown of Nazareth that's not, that's not how it works with God the people here put God into it's all about Israel box and as he introduces his kingdom he says, he says now is the time when I'm here for all and if you read through Luke's gospel, like I, I really hope that you will, I hope you'll embrace, embrace Luke's gospel, you can see time and time again where Jesus goes out and he meets with lepers and he meets with sinners and he meets with prostitutes. And all the way along the journey, the, 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 um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are saying, this can't be the Messiah because he's meeting with these people. He's meeting with people who he shouldn't be meeting with. And all the way Jesus keeps making this point he's making here, the kingdom is for everyone. It's for everyone. And Jesus lives this out in his life. 
And he tells this story to his hometown of Nazareth, this pointed story, so that he tries to blast their preconceptions of Jesus. He says, you can't put me in this box. I'm not just here to do miracles. And God's not just here anymore to protect Israel. God is here for everyone. And I think this changes things for us. I don't know if you've seen the film Titanic. Um, I, um, and and these guys here that's, that's not going to admit that they've seen the film Titanic. I, I love, I'm happy to say, I am in, fully in touch with my feminine side, and I love the film Titanic. I embrace it. And there's this scene um, towards the end of the film. You know it sinks at the end, right? You, you know that. Okay, good. <laughs> Thanks, John. The, the boat sinks, and there's this, this scene at the end where, where you begin to realize that this rescue mission is not for everyone. It was, it, and the ship was never intended to sink, and the plans were never, were never there to cover everybody being rescued. But even in this moment of how many can we rescue, you, you see that there are, there are special elevated people who are preserved, and there are lifeboats out there with two or three quite well-to-do people on. And you remember perhaps that the, they've locked up you and I, they've locked up the peasant people and they're behind the gates and they can't get out. And the rescue mission is not for everyone. And I thought it was quite a, it's a strong picture, isn't it, to imagine this, when everybody needs saving, that you have a lifeboat with just one or two well-to-do people on. I know a few churches like that. God didn't intend that the church should look like a preservation for one or two people who had a few contacts. That wasn't the way of the church. And Jesus is coming to smash up this sort of thinking and say, no, the church is for everyone. Everyone's supposed to be saved. We're here to get everybody off the boat. And if that was the story, the rescue operation on Titanic would look a lot different, wouldn't it? And I think if we as his people are here for everyone, it changes things. It shakes us up. It should do anyway. A few quotes that I found from, from great men and women about what the church should look like. The Lord did not tell us to build beautiful churches, but to evangelize the world, Oswald J. Smith. C.T. stood, some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell. I wish to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus comes to save everybody. I guess it changes how we see people. Our boss that drives us mad, who we've got nothing nice to say about whatsoever, and we don't want to spend any time with him. And I love to see people nudging each other. They're like, yeah, I've got a boss that drives me mad. Yep, Jesus died for them. Jesus died for them. The homeless guy that you walk past when you go to work, wherever you go to work, Jesus died for them. Jesus came for everyone. Let's think about what our lifeboat of the church should look like. So as you face your normality, when you're immersed in your everyday, when you've forgotten to do your Bible reading because of the kids, when, you, when you're trying to share your faith with that person at work and you've just given up because their normality just seems to oppress you and you just can't get past anywhere with it, I want you to do something for me and think about the grace of God. Greater barriers have been crossed before. Think about our sin. Think about how we stood before God. And think about the cross, the best example 
of grace that we have. Think about just how far we were separated from God, and yet God found a way back through grace. And we have this picture, don't we, of his side being pierced, and we sing of grace and love like a mighty river being released from his side. And we have this reservoir, this endless reservoir of grace at our disposal that we received, that we benefited from. And it's our job as his church to pass that on.